Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. Are you going to try to settle that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Were your parents morons too? Savvy entrepreneur to the rescue! Congratulations, that really turned out well. I'm a really good job. I'm really, really, I'm surprised. You know, I wish I thought of that. I never thought anyone would. How did you do that? I'm so glad you're here. I wish I had the courage to follow my friends. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We're broadcasting here on WLCB 101.5 FM from the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. If you are or you want to be an entrepreneur or a small business person, this show is for you. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. I'm a serial entrepreneur myself, and I've counseled lots of startups and small businesses over the past 30 years. This show has two goals, to provide and share helpful information and resources, and to inspire you as an entrepreneur. Now, to help with that, I have guests every week on the show who are willing to share their stories and advice. And this week's guest is Rochelle Martin. Michelle is the founder and managing director of something called the Winnow Fund. And she's responsible for seeking new investment opportunities with the Winnow Fund. Prior to joining this, she was a leader at UW-Madison's Office of Industrial Partnerships. The university has an open portfolio of over $4 billion in research grants and contracts with industrial sponsors, with annual awards exceeding $1 billion. Rochelle obtained a BA from the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and then she got her law degree from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. She is a mentor for the Doyen Group, a group that supports women entrepreneurs. She also serves on the Board of Advisors for the Emerging Tech Hub at the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery. And she's a board member of the Justin J. Watt Foundation, whose mission is to provide after-school activities and opportunities for children to become involved in athletics. The Winnow Fund is a venture capital fund located in Madison, Wisconsin and it focuses on creating startups based on ideas developed at universities across the state. Rochelle, thanks so much for being on the show today. Welcome to The Savvy Entrepreneur. Thank you, excited to be here. I think the place to start is to talk a little bit about the Winnow Fund. What is it and why did you start it? The Winnow Fund is a smaller venture capital fund. Uh, sometimes we're referred to as a, a micro VC fund in the uh, bigger scheme of things. And our focus is to invest in Wisconsin-based companies that are at the pre-seed stage. What that typically means is it is a pre-revenue company with a newer, you know, alpha or beta type product. They might have a small team of one or possibly two people. And so we're looking very, very early stage. Our goal is to replace the founders, family, friends rounds. Um, and so we get in earlier than what other venture funds typically would be doing. And then my focus specifically on university related ideas is based on my background from my time as being a lawyer and my time in the research enterprise at UW-Madison 
I've noticed that there's a lot of really, really great innovative things happening on campuses, but there are some difficulties in getting those off campuses and into emerging companies. And so my goal is to help some of our inventors and our entrepreneurs accomplish those goals. I spent a lot of time negotiating research contracts and working with these really innovative entrepreneurs, but there are three, I think, three significant hurdles that entrepreneurs and inventors face when it comes to starting a company. One, of course, is money, but the other two are legal. Uh, you know, they need assistance with some of the legal aspects of creating a company and sometimes getting that intellectual property off of a campus. And then the other is with personnel or finding the right leadership. When you have an inventor who's spent his entire life building a lab and pursuing a specific line of research, it's a really tough proposition for them to say, I'm going to give up possibly like my tenure position and bet it all on a company that, based on data, has at least a 50% chance of not being successful. And so we're also here to help entrepreneurs and inventors with two of those two other hurdles in addition to funding. And I'm sure that when the invention comes from academia, but this is this is frankly true, I think, of many entrepreneurs who are maybe more technical or more focused on the invention piece. They're very attached to their idea, but it's hard for them to accept that they simply may not be wired up the way, I shouldn't say the right way, but the best way to actually run a company, if that makes sense. And I'm sure that's a hard discussion as well. Yeah, I agree. In a lot of circumstances, it takes a different kind of person to build a product than it does to build a company. And not everyone is successful in both of those roles, but they are very, very different, which is why we encourage our inventors to partner with or to kind of hand the reins off to someone who may have more experience on the business side of things, because once the product is built, you know, that's not the end of it. And people in academics, that's the exciting part. The rest of it's kind of boring for them. So we say, let us help you find someone who will take the other side of, of that workload for you. So are there specific kinds of technologies or companies that you're looking for? And are all of these actual companies or some of them maybe not haven't even formed a company yet? We're pretty industry agnostic. Given the size and the, the lifetime of the fund, we have a 10-year life, there are some things where we just know that we would not be able to have the impact that we would need. So an example of that is something like a pharmaceutical. You know, a clinical trial for a pharmaceutical could take 20 million up to, you know, hundreds of millions, depending on what phase you're in. And when you're only a $10 million fund, that's not something that, that we think is going to be good for our portfolio. But in general, we are looking at things like agriculture, IT, medical device, medical imaging, advanced manufacturing, and engineered products. And those are the five categories that were identified by the state as being important to the Wisconsin economy when they created what's called the uh, Badger Fund of Funds. And the Badger Fund of Funds is my largest and lead investor. And so those categories have flowed through to me as the ones that we're focusing on. Yeah, let's talk about the uh, the Badger Fund of Funds. What exactly is that and how does that fit with what you're doing? A number of years ago, the state set aside $25 million to encourage entrepreneurial activity in the state. Wisconsin has been lagging behind 
pretty much every other state in terms of, you know, the number of startups that we're creating and the dollars that we're putting into those startups. And so Wisconsin recognized this and decided that they needed to do something to better support that community. So with that $20-25 million that they set aside, they took proposals from a few different groups on how they thought that that should be managed in terms of a venture fund. The winner was the Badger Fund of Funds because what they brought to the table was a partnership of individuals who had experience with venture capital specifically in Wisconsin and then a venture capital firm that had experience in managing fund of funds programs in other parts of the country and even in other countries. So the um, Sun Mountain Capital has experience with a fund of funds program down in New Mexico, uh, you know, in Utah, but then also in Mexico. So they have a lot of varied experience managing these types of programs. So pairing that with someone who strongly believes in the Wisconsin venture capital community and, and knows where growth could take us, that was the winner. They then raised an additional $10 million, about $10 million. So the Badger Fund of Funds is approximately a $35 million fund. What they then did with that $35 million is put it into a handful of smaller portfolio funds, each with similar goals of investing only in Wisconsin-based companies and at the earlier stages where we were lacking you know, a strong investment support base. It is tough. <laughs> Raising those first few dollars, are, those are the hardest dollars to raise. And so that's that's the place where we're focusing. Mm. Interesting. So where did you get the idea to to start this fund? I mean, is there a story behind the idea? I definitely did not think if you would have asked me, you know, five, ten years ago, if I would be managing a venture capital fund, this wasn't something that I, I grew up thinking this was the direction my career would take. But <laughs> I, and based on my my you know education and my I think previous careers, that it also is not very clear where I was going with it. But I by chance met one of the managing partners of the Badger Fund. I was volunteering at an event for an organization called Jazz at Five. It's an arts nonprofit based in Madison. And while I was volunteering, I met Ken Johnson, who was also on the board. Once we got to talking and he learned about my background, which to him, the highlights were, you know, I was a lawyer. I had experience working with startups through my time at the Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic at UW's Law School. Then I, you know, moved on and started negotiating research contracts for UW-Madison, and I gained a lot of experience with intellectual property, but also in understanding the university's patent policy. And so he found that really interesting and thought that it would pair well with one of the goals of the Badger Funds, which was to support university entrepreneurs. So he encouraged me to start the Winnow Fund. Without that encouragement, I can say with almost you know, 100% certainty, I never would have started a venture capital fund. So uh, with the support of one of the managing partners of the Badger Fund, I started the fund and he worked with me to help me secure that investment from the Badger Fund. So how did you come up with the name of the fund? When I worked at UW, I spent most of my time working in an office in Bascom Hall. Bascom Hall is kind of the building everyone thinks of. It's iconic. You know, it's at the top of the hill. It's got the columns in front. And there's a plaque on the side of one of the doors. And it refers to, you know, sifting and winnowing. So the idea that the university is a place that 
gives people the resources to sift and winnow through like academic truth. Well, I thought it was kind of applicable to venture capital because I like the idea of sifting and winnowing, you know, at a kind of basic explanation. It's you sort the good from the bad. You sort the valuable stuff from kind of the extraneous stuff. And I thought that was pretty applicable to what venture capitalists and just investors in general are doing is they see a lot of ideas. Some might just not be great commercially viable ideas. Some might not be great fits for what that investor is looking for. And so you sift and winnow through a lot of different things to find, you know, those those really good ideas, those good companies that you then want to support and invest in and see grow. I love that. That's a great story. And that puts a wonderful context behind the name of the fund. But it's also a great lead in, I think, to my next question, which is how do you go about sifting and winnowing through all the different ideas? I mean, I, I guess I'm envisioning maybe naively that working with great ideas and helping commercialize ideas from academia might be a little different than your typical venture fund where, frankly, you you have people banging down your door all the time. (laughs) Can I have five minutes of your time? I'm sort of picturing maybe you get some of that in academia, but in some cases maybe requires being more proactive. I don't know. Talk a little bit about that. You're right. And and I should say we do still invest in traditional early stage companies. My focus and my passion is on drawing some of these off of campuses. So I have a mix, but there is a little more active searching when it comes to finding things on campuses because people see a bigger disconnect from the product phase to the venture capital phase as they do from the, you know, formed startup company with a a beta, you know, tested um, software program looking for venture capital. So people don't think that you can go directly from that product phase to the investment phase. So there is, there is some education happening with our university contacts. There is some active, you know, networking and just maintaining good flows of communication with them. But it is interesting and it's tough to go through all these ideas. One of the things I joke about is when I was at the Lawn Entrepreneurship Clinic and I was a student attorney, it was so easy to get wrapped up in how excited these entrepreneurs were about the potential that they had and that their companies had. And when I went to a traditional law practice, that wasn't there. I was doing estates and taxes and family law, and it was the complete opposite. Nobody wanted to see me. Seeing me was a bad sign when it came to those types of matters. You know, I, I wasn't I wasn't helping people accomplish their dreams. It was quite the opposite. And so I was excited to get back to a different place. And I feel like I'm back in that same kind of emotional trajectory. So someone comes to me and they say, we have this great company. So it's hard not to say yes to everyone just based on pure excitement. You know, what I have to do is pull back. And the first thing I look at is the numbers because my job is to generate return for my investors. That is the way that I have to focus my my efforts. So when I look at company, I have to run the numbers. I have to look at what I know about comparable companies in the industry, the market size, see how realistic this company is being about their potential. 
and I run all those numbers to see if they they have the ability to generate the return that I have told my investors is my goal for them. That's the thing that kind of brings me back down to reality is looking at the numbers, looking at you know averages compared to what this company is telling me and trying to figure out if we're a good fit for them. You know, what impact is my investment gonna have for this company? You know, because sometimes companies need more money than what I can give them. So it's a lot of trying to focus on data and real numbers instead of emotion. And I think that that's something that venture capital in general brings to the table is we don't act, I should say, I don't, and a lot of other venture capitalists I know don't act based on emotion, which makes our decision-making process a little bit easier and a little bit easier to explain and to apply equally across the board. I'm guessing your job is also, in some respects, particularly challenging. You know, it's funny, what you're doing sounds a little bit like a group that I belong to in Northern Illinois that calls itself the Smart Health Accelerator. And they're very focused on health, but they they go around to the various universities looking for healthcare kinds of things. But what has struck me in listening to the discussions about the various companies is how nebulous some of them are and how difficult it is to make a determination about whether or not there's even going to be market acceptance. I'm envisioning your job as being quite difficult because oftentimes there's a lot of missing information, whereas with venture capitalists, most traditional venture capitalists, you know, they're ready with their pitch deck and they've got, you know, market research and they've got product and they probably got some sales and they understand their sales cycle. I mean, what you're talking about is really kind of more tabula rasa, sort of blank slate, right? Yes. And it is difficult, which is why one of the factors we focus pretty heavily on is the capability of the team. Once I have developed a level of comfort with the financials, the next big question is, do I think the team can pull this off? They can come to me with the best business plan I've ever seen. But if I don't think the team can execute it, it's still they're not going to get any money from us. You know, that business plan becomes meaningless. And so that is, I think, earlier on something that I tend to focus on. I do have an investment committee made up of five individuals who help me with that, like you said, more nebulous analysis, because one of the best indicators of whether a company is going to be successful is if the founders have done it before, if they have had a startup before, and especially if they've had success with a previous startup. So that is something that we consider when we are looking at companies that we're potentially going to invest in. But you're right. I mean, this is the riskiest, one of the riskiest phases of investing. The earlier you get, the riskier it gets. And so that's why we try very hard to provide more than just funding, because we want to make sure that we have people around who can say, oh, that's a pitfall. Believe me, I've gone down that rabbit hole before or you know, here's some things that I've done that have helped me solve this problem that I see that you're having. And so it's a little more than just money that we're hoping to provide. And at the earlier stages, while it is riskier, you can also have a bigger impact. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about funding. 
a lot of entrepreneurs are very, very fixated on trying to get funding and they spend a lot of time working on finding funding. But my sense is that there are maybe some misconceptions about some of the terms. So is there a difference between seed funding and angel funding? There are two different categories. Seed describes the timing. Angel describes the source. There are some correlations between, you know, timing and source. Angels tend to get involved earlier. They may be writing a check size of twenty-five to fifty to a hundred thousand dollars, and you typically would see that in an earlier fundraising cycle. As you move on and that company grows and gets more successful, they'll raise later rounds and those rounds get bigger. So you see bigger check sizes commonly. Not always, you know, sometimes they do make room for some people to come in at smaller amounts. But the other thing to think about is if you're writing a $50,000 check into a company that's valued at $500,000, that's much different for your bottom line and for your equity stake than if you're writing a $50,000 check in a company that's valued at $5 million. And so angels do tend to invest in the earlier stages of a company. The terminology around each stage, you know, pre-seed, seed, series A, B, it can vary depending on geographically where you're located, what type of company you are. Pre-seed was a term that was somewhat recently developed because seed stages of financing were sometimes too big for companies. Uh, you know, so if a company only needed to raise $500,000, they didn't want to call it a seed a seed round because then everyone kind of assumed they might be raising, you know, one or $2 million. And so the terminology is all kind of relative. I think it just has to flow sequentially so people understand what number of financing, what round number of round it is that you're raising. There's a lot of, you know, articles out there about the how the terminology has changed because what was considered seed 10 or 15 years ago is very different than what is considered seed today. Yeah, I can see why it is confusing sometimes to entrepreneurs to try to find the right source. I mean, I think most entrepreneurs I've worked with understand if you're going to a very large venture capital firm and your idea isn't incredibly disruptive and has the potential to scale multiple times, they're not going to be interested in you. But beyond that, my sense is that there's a lot of time wasted, maybe wasting the venture capitalists and the, the angel investors time, but also the investors time trying to figure out, you know, is this a match for me or not? Do you have any advice for entrepreneurs as they're looking for different funding sources about how to make sure that the sources you're pitching to are a good match? You need to know that your end goals are aligned with the investor that you're pitching to. So a good example is if you are looking to build and exit a company. So if you want to sell your company in five years then venture might be a good option for you. But if you are starting a restaurant that you plan to be your source of income, you know, for the next 20 years, venture is not the right fit for you because a venture capitalist wants to get their money back out. You know, they do that through some sort of liquidation event. So 
that the first thing is to think about what you as an entrepreneur hope to get out of your business. So is this going to be your source of income where it's revenue generating and you pay yourself and you have some employees and it can go on for 30 years? Or is this I want to build this so that it's big enough to get acquired by, you know, Microsoft or GE Healthcare or whatever industry that you're in. So the first thing is to think about what your goals are with the company. But beyond that, you also want to make sure that you're a match for the requirements of that fund. I think it can be misleading if you see a hundred million dollar fund and you say, oh, I only need five hundred thousand dollars. They have plenty of money. So we should give that a shot. Realistically, that fund probably doesn't write checks smaller than five million dollars. And that's part of their strategy, but also because administratively, if you're a really big fund and you're writing $500,000 checks, that's an administrative nightmare for you, keeping track of all of these companies. And so I think that people need to think a little bit deeper into the practicality of partnering with some of these funds. And, And it's fair, I think, for someone who, if you've done the research and cannot find this information available on a website or through articles or or through maybe connections you have to somebody at that fund about what their requirements are, it's fair for you to reach out and say, we're a company and we're raising. We are wondering if we might be a good fit for your fund. So can you tell me about what your criteria are? Because I often get emails from companies that are outside of Wisconsin companies that are looking to raise $5 million, you know, companies that to me, it's very clear that they have not done any research on my fund and they don't even check kind of the easiest boxes to, to check off the easiest criteria to satisfy. And so I think that's kind of frustrating because if I'm getting this and I'm a tiny fund that's only been around for, you know, a few years, imagine what some of these bigger funds are getting. And so, you know, do your research and check to make sure that you guys have the same goals. And then once you have the same kind of ultimate goals that you are looking at the same criteria. Wow, that's great advice. Rochelle, I have lots more questions to ask you, but at this point, we need to take a quick break for station identification. This is Doris Nagel, and you're listening to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Our guest this week is Rochelle Martin who's the founder of a venture capital fund based in Wisconsin called the Winnow Fund. Rochelle, I think one of the things you're very modest about that you didn't talk about in your bio is that the Winnow Fund is really the first venture capital fund started by a woman in Wisconsin. Talk about some of the unique challenges that that presented and you know maybe still does present for you. It is the first fund started solely by a woman. I like to give credit to other women who have been in the venture capital world before me, but maybe did it with a a team. So people like Judy Owen and Tony Sykes, and there's women who have just been in the entrepreneurship and, and investment space like Jan Eddy and you know, so there's there's there are women around. I think what's unique though is that no woman has said I'm doing this on my own and raising a fund on my own because there are different ways funds get created and some funds are corporate and they have funding from a business entity and then some funds are kind of bootstrapped like a like a startup and they have to go out and find their own investors. And so 
going out and finding my own investors is the way that that the Winnow Fund got started. I didn't fully grasp that I was the only woman to have raised her own fund before. Maybe that's why I try to be modest about it is because I kind of stumbled into it. Um, I, didn't, I didn't intend to be some sort of trailblazer, but what was interesting to me is how noticeable it is in certain rooms, the lack of women and the lack of diversity in the venture capital space. But what was also really interesting to me is the complete sort of lack of intentionality about it. I don't think anyone in the space here in Wisconsin is actively excluding women or people of color from the venture capital world. And so I think it's something that we need to bring more awareness to, but I don't think that anyone is, um, you know, adverse to making some changes there. So what I'm kind of saying is that I don't think anyone's ever intentionally discriminated against me or talked over me or ignored me in a meeting. I think that it's just something that's been very unusual for them and kind of unexpected when I make an appearance in a room because they're so used to not seeing women in a room that when a woman shows up, it makes everyone kind of stop and think a little bit. And it's a little weird. I think that's the best way to describe it is that it's weird and it's weird for the, you know, kind of traditional venture capital community, but it's also weird for the new people. So it's just something that that we have to acknowledge and accept. And then, you know, I like I like to say, I just keep showing up and then the more I show up, the less weird it gets. And I feel very accepted now. Now, I don't think that people find it weird when I come to meetings and you know, you walk in and people know your name. And I feel like I'm very much part of that that community now. But we certainly do have some room to continue to make changes. You know, that that squares with my own experience. I'm not a venture capitalist and never have been. But just in terms of being in rooms of merger and acquisition, joint venture kind of work, that certainly squares with my experience. And What you're saying, I think, is similar to what I've heard from other women who are entrepreneurs or in the venture capital world. You know, I'm curious, why do you think there are and have been traditionally so few women in the venture capital world? I mean, it's not like women are bad at finance, you know? No, you know, data data shows that women make a lot of financial decisions in the household and that the you know kind of percentage on average is is increasing i think the way that venture funds were started 20 you know 30 years ago was some successful men who were retiring from their career but they wanted to get together with a few other people in their network that they knew were successful and they put together a fund you know it it was more of a kind of like a hobby like an investment club and those grew and, you know, if they were successful, they continued to, to make those investments. And so I think it's just an interesting way that these that the venture capital community started out. I don't think women have the same opportunity to have those discussions that men were having. We don't get together and talk about finances over a round of golf or drinks. I mean, there's a lot of other things that I'm sure everyone talks about. But I think if you really looked at how often that came up 
in groups of men versus women, it's different. And so one of the things that I'm really proud of doing is having some women in my fund that I've taken the time to say, you're more than qualified to be an investor in a venture capital fund. You know, you're sophisticated enough in this world that you can be a have a role in it, that you can be an investor, whether it's through a funder or as an angel or in their own investment club with their friends. And so part of it is just letting people know that this opportunity is available to them. There are some certain qualifications that investors need to meet in most circumstances. The common one is called being an accredited investor, which you have to meet some specifications uh, of the SEC. But once people understand that, you know, it's kind of like there's no further barriers other than the hurdles that they've seen for themselves. And so having conversations with people and letting them know that this is something that they absolutely can be a part of has been really helpful. So I do have a pretty good number of women investors in my fund, and most of them are first time investors. So it's been it's it's interesting to see how easy it was for them to make that decision once you said to them, this is an option for you. And here's just a little bit of information that you might need to make that decision. Just changing things one brick at a time, sounds to me like, which is good. I'm curious too, though, whether you think that the historical lack of women in the investment funding world has affected how little capital then has flowed to women entrepreneurs. I saw some statistic, you know, there are different numbers out there, but it's pretty insane. Like (laughs) something like 3% or something like that of venture capital goes to women owned entrepreneurs. Yeah, you're right. It is is single digit percentages and usually it's below 5%. So, you know, 2.5, 3% of venture capital in the country goes to women-owned companies. I think the change needs to happen on the decision-making side of the table, kind of what you just alluded to, especially if it's a company where women are the targeted customer base, or if it's a company that has, you know, if it's a broader customer base, something like healthcare. In healthcare, women still make up half of the people that you're going to be providing that service to. So it's important to have the viewpoint of the women that you're targeting as customers on that decision-making side of the table. And that's the only way that I think we're going to make long-lasting, significant change is if we start balancing that out. My goal was to make sure that if an entrepreneur came to pitch to my fund for an investment that they would see themselves somehow represented, you know, on the other side of the table. And so uh, that's why it was important to me to have at least one woman on my investment committee, because I didn't ever want an entrepreneur to come into the room and feel like they were the only, you know, they were kind of singled out or have that feeling of being weird because pitching, I think is stressful enough. They didn't need that on top of it, but you know, so Now, if a company comes to pitch to my investment committee, if it's a man or a woman who's pitching, they're going to see someone who kind of looks like them sitting across the table from them. And I think that that's really important. Representation is important. Yeah. Do you find that fewer women entrepreneurs 
actually pitched to you and to other venture capitalists? Or is there something different about the way that they pitch that may need to change? I mean, I'm I'm just curious about your perspective on it. I think becoming an entrepreneur in general is difficult. And there's a lot of things that maybe certain people can't do. So if you're an entrepreneur, you have to be prepared to leave your job. In a lot of cases, you have to be prepared to put a significant amount of money into that company of your own money into that company. And it's one of the things that frustrates me about the startup world. And one of the reasons why I think it's important to be a source of funding very early on is because the way that it seems to work more often than not is right now, you only have a good idea. If you have a good idea and you can quit your job and you can put $100,000 into it. But not everyone can do that. And so I think women more often than men find themselves in that position where if you want to really kind of trace it back, women don't earn as much as men. Women sometimes have more obligations at home and it creates a lot of smaller hurdles that are in addition to those bigger hurdles that the general entrepreneur faces. And so there is there are some issues with leveling the playing field for people who want to take that first step towards being an entrepreneur. I think this also applies definitely to people of color. You know, they don't have necessarily the same network where they can go to some friends and family and each of them can put in $50,000 into a company. Right, right, right. um, I think we need to think about that the very early stages. So even before someone would expect a pitch to a venture capital group or to an angel group, you need to think even earlier on in the life cycle of an entrepreneur and a startup company about some of the hurdles that exist for different demographics. So I don't think it's necessarily that women pitch differently, but I think it's that we just don't see as many women entrepreneurs out there. Of course, I love that I don't feel any woman entrepreneur has any hesitation about reaching out to me because people like talking to people that look like them. I think women would actually find it easier to approach me than to approach a lot of other venture capitalists in the community. Yeah. You know, I find your perspective really interesting because when I first started doing this show, my goal was to have it be about women entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs giving advice to other women entrepreneurs. And I very quickly had to change my perspective on that because it was so difficult to consistently find those people as guests for the show. Isn't that funny? Yeah, but I but I completely understand. And the other thing is a lot of women, even though they may have started their own business or they might even have, you know, an idea that they've been thinking about, they don't consider themselves entrepreneurs. So sometimes it's just the terminology because entrepreneur sounds a little more serious than what some women are willing to to kind of label themselves as. But they, I think they also are more hesitant. Women are more hesitant to seek outside funding. Yeah. Probably because they know, based on data, that the likelihood of them getting outside funding is pretty minimal. But so I think there's a lot of complicating factors, and it's it's going to take a while before we can see significant change. But, you know, it, it's as long as we're taking steps in that direction, I think it's a good sign. 
One of the significant ones being getting more diversity on the decision-making side of the table. Right. I know you deal with academia a lot, but do you find that there are fewer women inventors or that women are more or less interested in taking their ideas and commercializing them in the university community? I've heard this you know, from some other people in the traditional investment world. I think women are not less risk averse than men. Women just usually want to understand it better. And if they don't have the resources to learn about the risk that they're taking, I can see why it would prevent them from them taking that step. So I don't think it's a matter of women aren't creating or women aren't interested in becoming, uh, you know, an inventor and, and spinning out a company or developing a product. I think that in a lot of instances, it's just a lack of access to information and education about what that undertaking really compromises or comprises because they just want to understand what they're getting into before they make that decision. Yeah. So talk a little bit about your investment evaluation process a little bit. What what does it look like? Are there some common themes in companies that are a good fit for your fund? Yeah, what I, I like to see is earlier stage, typically pre-revenue. The reason we look early stage is because we're writing what on the, the bigger scheme of things is a smaller check size. So somewhere between two fifty to five hundred thousand dollars if it's an established company. If it's a product what we might be initially putting into that company could be more like twenty-five to $100,000 if we're really just doing proof of concept work. So if we just need to say, is this an idea that actually functions the way that we want it to? Is it a piece of software that we need to see if, if you know, it, it can be coded the right way? Then sometimes it's a, a smaller, earlier investment. And again, that's more of the product phase investment. But what we look at in general is just companies where if they can generate the return that we need, where we can then have an impact on them with the check size that we're willing to write. And then again, the team, you know, the, the really big thing is when you're an investor, it's a five to 10 year relationship that you're engaging in with this company. So you better like each other because <laughs> you're going to be partners in this for quite a while and you want to make sure you have the same goals you want to make sure that you know how to communicate and that you feel comfortable with that relationship that you have with them and I think it goes both ways I think you know not every company has the luxury of of an opportunity to get investment from multiple groups but if they do then they certainly should be evaluating what the right kind of personality fit is with the, the group that they're going to take the money from. Talk a little bit about some of the kinds of support and oversight you provide to your portfolio companies, because my my sense is that there's there's quite a range. So just as an example, one of my past clients got a, a seed money grant from something called Connecticut Innovations Fund, uh, which is a, a state fund like the fund of funds, but not investing in other funds. But, you know, Connecticut Innovations Fund didn't provide really much of any oversight or assistance. They just wrote a nice check. 
talk about your philosophy in terms of helping and supporting and providing oversight to companies that you invest in? It can vary widely by the group that you're taking the investment from. Some groups write checks and they just want to get their reports and then hopefully see the return that gets generated. But we are different. We hope that it, by getting involved earlier. So a good example is if we do find a product that is promising and we help create a company around it, we would help on the legal side. And so that's where my legal background is most useful is coming in to help them build a solid foundation for that company. Uh-huh. And also to manage any intellectual property concerns, especially where it comes to universities, we want to make sure that we have the appropriate agreements in place with any institution that might own the intellectual property if we need a license or if we need to make sure that there's some assignment. And then if we have a faculty member you know, who's tenured and doesn't want to quit their job and risk it all in this company, we can help them find the right leadership by branching out to our network and particularly looking for people that have helped uh, lead companies before so we can help try to help them recruit the right leadership for that company and then of course the, the other big um, aspect being the financial support but then beyond that if we've done kind of checked off all those boxes so we've created a company we've gotten a, a CEO in place and they've gotten the check from us we like to take a board seat as an early and significant investor mm-hmm. And through that board seat, we can find uh, a board member who represents the fund that has the appropriate expertise. So, you know, for example, I don't have a lot of experience with medical devices. And if we invested in a medical device company, I would look to my investor base and then also to my broader network to find someone who has the right level of support who can truly contribute to the success of that company. And so there's also that potential for someone to be a little more hands-on after the, you know, funding is provided and that company is created. Mm. I was just curious whether you have like, you know, monthly update meetings with, with your portfolio companies. I mean, what's a day in the life look like from a management perspective? We have monthly investment committee meetings. At those meetings, we invite a company to come in and present. uh, And that's where we make a decision on whether we're going to make an investment or not. And quarterly updates go out to my broader investor base about the activities of the fund. Annually, my investor base meets as a whole. But um, When we send out quarterly reports, portfolio companies do need to provide information that we then further distribute to our investors. I should say the Winnow Fund just entered our investment phase in January. So we're kicking this process off. And right now we have one company that we have approved an investment in and we're doing diligence on that deal. So we don't actually have any companies in our portfolio right now we are looking to add our first company into the portfolio. Great, great. What do you think the Winnow Fund will look like in, say, three to five years if you're successful? Are you going to continue to raise more money? What will your portfolio look like? I have a five-year initial investment phase, meaning in the first five years of the fund, I can make first-time investments in companies. 
after the first five years, we can only make follow-on investments. And so no new companies can enter into our portfolio. And that's important for remaining you know, on track for that 10-year lifetime of the fund. So our hope is we invest in a company and it's gonna exit in you know, three to five years. So if I invest in a company in year five, I wanna make sure that it can be positioned for exit by you know, year nine or year 10. Mm. So after three to five years, I hope that I have most of the companies you know, set in my portfolio. And once I'm done making those initial investments to establish the portfolio, I would love to raise fund two. I would like to go out and kind of start the fundraising process for a second fund that can go out and support more companies. Wow, interesting. Well, what have you enjoyed the most so far about establishing and running the Window Fund? I never knew where my career was going. And looking back, it seems very kind of haphazard. So my undergrad time was spent getting bachelor's degrees in art history, political science, and psychology. And what I plan to do with any of those, I don't know. I, <laughs> you have, you have like I do, an endless curiosity. You are an intellectually curious person. I have I, no doubt. That. Yeah. I like learning and I like learning in a lot of different things. And so, uh, when I was in undergrad, I was a paralegal in a law firm and I really enjoyed the work I did. So that led me to go to law school. And I went to law school for three years, graduated and worked in a firm for 10-ish months. And <laughs> after probably five months, I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do. So again, I had gotten this degree that I didn't think really was what I wanted to do in my life. So I went back to the university and negotiated research contracts. And I got a lot of experience with negotiating and with intellectual property. But then I also learned about funding commercialization of technologies. And I worked on grant programs, you know, one through the state and one through UW-Madison's tech transfer office. And I started getting this new appreciation for the funding side of things. And so I think what's really interesting and what I love about what I'm doing now is none of that was wasted. None of my education, none of none of the experiences that I had ended up being wasted. I, I use things that I've learned along that path every single day, but I also get to continue to learn and find out about new technologies and find out more about venture capital and new ways, you know, to engage with companies. And I still get to do some negotiation on the term sheets and, you know, I get to delve into to IP assignments. And so I feel like in a weird way, as unintentional as my career trajectory was, it's all sort of coming together at this point. And I joke, I, I said something to someone the other day when we were scheduling a meeting and I said, well, you're the one with the real job. So why don't you tell me what your schedule looks like? Because my job is just fun. I think like, I feel like I do this because I enjoy doing it. And I have to remind myself that this is a real job. Um, you know, I take it very seriously, but I enjoy it so much that if I'm working at night or on a weekend, it's because I want to. Wow. Um, that's, and so, what, that's when you know you've found your niche, when you feel that way about it. Yeah. You know, you know, may we all be so lucky to find that kind of niche. There are a number of us out there who just, you know, refuse. I always joke that I refuse to stay down on the farm. 
you know, I, I would always get this <laughs> advice to niche down, you know, take one thing you're interested in, stay focused on that. And I just, I could not do it. I just could not. It's <laughs> not wired that way. And so it's great to know that there are wonderful opportunities and careers for other fellow people who simply can't stay down on the farm. <laughs> Rochelle, the time has flown by as I as I guessed it would. One last question for you before I let you go. Sure. And that is, if someone is interested in learning more about the Winnow Fund, maybe they are listening and are thinking maybe you might be a good fit for them, or maybe they're interested in being an investor, or just something you said struck a chord with them and they'd like to reach out, what's the best way for them to reach you? LinkedIn is always um, nice because then it gives me a chance to learn about your background too. Uh, and so it's just Rochelle Martin um, at LinkedIn. I don't think there's a lot of us out there, especially not a lot of Rochelle's. Um, and then also just by email, it's Rochelle at winnowfund.com. Um, you know, if, if you're an investor who, or if you want to be an investor, another good way to connect is through a program that I am participating in through the Doyen group. So Doyen is a nonprofit group that supports entrepreneurs who identify as female uh, and also people of color. And we've started a, a women investor accelerator program for women who are interested in learning more about investing. As I said, it's it's not about being risk averse. It's about having the right information. And so we hope to provide that. Um, and then if you're an entrepreneur, I would say, you know, you guys kind of heard my criteria early stage companies, um, Wisconsin base, you know, looking to exit in three to five years. If you think you check those boxes, then, you know, by all means, I, I'd love to hear about what you're working on. And so LinkedIn or email, I think, are the two easiest ways to connect. Rochelle, thanks so much for being on the show this week. It was really great having you. I enjoyed chatting. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. Folks, thanks so much for listening. And thanks again, especially to our guest today, Rochelle Martin, talking about seed funding and venture capital and the Winnow Fund. You can find more helpful information and resources on my website, globalocityservices.com. There's a library of free tools, blogs, podcasts, and other resources for entrepreneurs. I'd love to hear from you. My email is dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakesradio.org. You can email me with comments, questions, suggestions, or maybe even just to shoot the breeze. I'd love to hear from you, and I promise you'll get an answer back. Now, be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern Time. Until then, though, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneurial.